All right. So we spoke last week about Gomel Chasadim Tovim. That was kind of our main topic over there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to just wrap that up and hopefully move on to Vikone Hakol. All right. So Gomel Chasadim Tovim. And we talked about Gomel, Gemilus Chasadim. Gemila is the fullest development of a particular object or person. Right? So it, we saw that it applied also to like blossoms from the almonds, like blossoming into almond. Like it doesn't have to be a person, but Gemila is the fullest development of it. So Gemilus Chesed then is doing something, is doing a Chesed but doing it in the most chesedic way, which may mean, and, and probably does mean, Gemilus <laughs> Chasadim is doing chesed in such a way that you know when to do giving and when to give by not giving, which is why to wean a child is also Gemila, because it's feeding them, it's providing for them, but also knowing when to not provide in order that they can develop more fully. And we pointed out that that kind of makes the phrase Gomel Chasadim Tovin, um, where Tovin, let me just review, Tov, Tov is goodness, not according to immediate gratification, but, but recognizing goodness as that which has eternal impact or eternal existence, that which is God's will, that it, that it exists eternally. So that's the ultimate chesed. The ultimate chasadim tovim is when God does chesed for us and it is truly chesed and it is truly chesed that also holds back and does not feel so much like chesed sometimes in order that we will have greater eternal life. So it is a more full kind of chesed. And that's kind of chesed gvura emes all bundled into one is gomel chasadim tovim. All right. So I wanted to, um, this is just a really interesting piece. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's a section from, I didn't even know this existed. It's called Beis Levi. It is not the Beis HaLevi. This is not Brisker. This is a parish of Rav Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev on Pirkei Avos, which I didn't know existed. And I came across this passage because on Vakone HaKol, there's something from Pirkei Avos. So I was looking for and this is not his parish on Vakone Hakol, but it's the Mishnah before it, and therefore I came across it. So, <coughs> and it, it's a beautiful um, definition of chesed, of Hashem's chesed. He says, mm-hmm. He says, there's, there's a concept that every day a baskol, a divine echo, which is, I think, Rabbi After's definition of it, which I think is awesome. Divine. Echo. That is like a very good translation, yeah, right? Nice. Yeah. Not that I know. Like, <laughs> but I like the translation. Also because like Bas is like a daughter of, so an echo, right? right? A Bas call, a divine echo, uh, echoes every day, and says, Shuvu vanim shovivim, return wandering children. Which now strikes me how interesting that the word shovav comes from the word shuvah, because shuvah is to wander away. It's like to stray. And shuvah is to return. Shuvu vanim shovavim. 
kind of fits a lot of the things we've learned about tshuva, right? That it's through the wandering away that we come back, right? But I never noticed it before. That's very interesting. Hagam she'ein anu shomim elu hachruzim. Even though we do not hear these announcements. So <laughs> there are these announcements, you know, the PA system is going, but we don't hear it. So what is the point? Why, why are these divine echoes paging us in the world if we don't hear them anyway? It says there, but nonetheless, there is a purpose to them. There is a value. Because it causes a person to be able to rouse himself. Like a father waking up the son. Even though his son isn't going on the right path. So let's just... So it's 6 o'clock in the morning and your kids have to get up and it's dark out and they stayed up a little late doing homework, something good, or possibly not doing what they should be doing. And nonetheless, you go in, you flip on the light, you say, good morning, rise and shine, Modani, right? So does the kid hear you? Apparently not, right? There's no movement, there's no, but somewhere inside, right? It goes in the ears, it makes, it registers somewhere, but then it's up to the child, right? It's up to the kid. If the kid, the kid can then choose to get up or not, or to wake up, meaning even when you're unconscious, things get in, and the question is, what's he going to do? But it will plant some sort of unconscious seed in their mind that it's time to wake up. And they, they really are more, I mean, why do parents do this? <laughs> if you're not, I mean, there's like the stage where you actually go and get them up. But why do you do this even at the stage when they're past that? And they might still stay in bed for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, you know? Because you know that the fact that you did it planted a sort of a seed inside of them somewhere that they, they then may wake up. Like they, they're more likely to wake up by themselves because you planted the seed that it's time to wake up. Now, is that a contradiction? They're waking up by themselves, but you, it's not really. The beginning of the waking up. It's the beginning of the waking up, but it's before they woke up, right? They still have to wake themselves up. You can't say you woke them up because they didn't move and they don't move for another 20 minutes or something, 20 hours, whatever it is, right? <laughs> but at the same time, they definitely are waking up. They're more likely to wake up because you did it. So they're doing it by themselves, and yet you're waking them up. And, and the father, who has pity on his kid, so he, he takes the time, he troubles himself to call out and say, time to get up, okay? Even though the kid is staying in bed. Similarly with the Jewish people. Every day there is a hisoros, there's a wake-up call to tshuva. That's what it means, that there's a divine echo every day that comes out and says, wake up, children. Return, children. Nothing will stand in the way of tshuva. And God gives us an arousal, a hisoros, a wake-up call for it. He plants the seed of that tshuva in our minds. And then, when we do do tshuva, he credits us as if we did it ourselves. <laughs> this, is, this is the meaning of l'cha Hashem chesed. To you Hashem is chesed. What, what is the chesed that is, 
God's great chesed to us? He says it's like a tzedakah. That you repay a person according to his deeds as if they were his deeds. As if they were his own. Right? Because they say, oh, good job. Glad to see you got up on time and made it. Right? As if you didn't go in and turn on the light and say, time to get up. This is chesed. Nonetheless, it is true that even though Hashem is giving us the awakening to wake up, the person does have to take action, lehischazik, to grab hold of the hisorus. It is still, it's completely up to us whether we will grab hold of that hisorus and do something with it. And it's, it's really very subliminal. We don't notice that we hear a baskol, but there's a baskol out there. It's penetrating somewhere underneath the slumber of our physical awareness. There's a boss call out there calling out every day and saying, return, come back. So I just really wanted to add this under the Gomel Chasadim Tovim, because it very much is that giving us the freedom to sin and the freedom to return, right? I mean, that's, that, we have this, uh, like on this page, you know, the whole, well, the we see it in other places. Birkas Gomel. Gomel Tovos. God does good for those who are who owe, for those who are Chayev. Right? He does good for us, even though we don't really deserve to have, be saved from these things. We're also mentioning the fact that we're Chayev. There's this kind of like, and, and saying, I want to do good. Who you can willingly call to sell out, like, you know. We're thanking Hashem also for Yetzirah. We're thanking Hashem also for the fact that we are not perfect, for giving us the, a break when we mess up, right? I mean, he, but he made us able to mess up too. We talked about this, I think, um, maybe it was two years ago, Rosh Hashanah. Rav Berkowitz has this wonderful thing. He says, you don't, a person cannot take credit for all of his good personal qualities. You're born with them, right? If you're, you have all these, you can't just take credit for those. He talks about, he talks a lot about taking responsibility. I don't, don't want to like mislead by taking this one little piece. So when you hear from somebody who talks a lot about choice and using your mind to decide what to do and taking personal responsibility, but he says you don't get to take credit for all of your good midos that you were born with. You know, God gave them to you. You were born that way. You were born ambitious or you were born, you know, energetic or whatever. He says, but you also don't get to take credit for all your bad qualities. Whoa. That was like an interesting, right? And that frees you to stop, to stop trying to work on the things that aren't getting you anywhere for the last 20 years in your resolution list and start looking at what you are able to take the credit and responsibility for. Very, very different concept, right? So we could be grateful. And, and we see, we've talked about this many times in the past, how it seems to be worked into the world from the get-go, even before Adam was born. There seems to have been worked into the world this tshuva process, right? We have the idea that Torah was created before the world, before my sabrashis. Tshuva was created before my sabrashis. And I think that that's what it's talking about, right? We saw every single day of creation, we saw an aspect of it. We saw the first day God created the light and then he put some of it away because it's not going to be suitable for Rishayim. Rishayim, there's no people. Why are you putting it away, right? It's built in. Right? With the rakia, you have the machlokas, you have division. You have on the fourth day, the sun and the moon, and the moon gets smaller, and someday it'll come back around to be big again. Like, what's it? This, doesn't, this is like well before the people came and messed up. 
There is, it seems to be woven into the fabric of creation, Torah and Shuvah. Right? Well, tshuva being woven into the fabric of creation pretty much means then that messing up is woven into the... I mean, that bechira, that free will, is woven in. And we've talked about how that that will get someone to a higher place and even mankind, right? Rav David Cohen has that wonderful piece about the role of women. How we see, you know, you, you come across it much more often, the idea that, yeah, it was the woman's fault because of the tree and Gan Eden and whatever. He said, yes, but we also have in the Zuchus Nashem Sidkanios Negalu Avosenu Mimitzrayim that we were redeemed. And in fact, we've seen a pattern that in every Gullus, it's the woman who catalyzed the Geula. You have it on Purim, you have it on Hanukkah, right? When I, I it was a shear from Rav David Orlovsky about whenever the Torah set, whenever you have a mitzvah that women are putter from, but they do it anyway. Right, so the four cups on Pesach, mm-hmm. which is right, and the Hanukkah menorah, and right, He says it doesn't mean they were, they got saved by the same miracle. It's more than they catalyzed the miracle. The miracle came through the women, mm-hmm. right, and and it's in the merit of the women that we will be redeemed. And Rav David Cohen, take, his take on that is that is the that's the peak of humanity. The peak, okay, so man and woman are one unit. We're created as one unit, Adam, male and female, and then we're separated, so it's one unit. But that's an important part of the process. That's not a failure of the process. That's, that is the process. The process is you're going to sin, you're going to have tshuva, and when you get back to the beginning, you're in a higher place than you were before. The messianic era is getting back to a state of Adam Harishon before the sin. And yet, it isn't going to be exactly the same as Adam Harishon before the sin, because it's after. It's with tshuva. Okay, we talked about this a lot also going into tzitzis, right? That whole process of how do I make, trying to make sure I won't do it again. Right, that was also that theme. That you're much, you're a stronger person, right? When it's about taking extra steps to make sure I won't make the same mistake again. Okay, so this gratitude. This is a bigger kind of chesed. Do we wish for Yisurim? No. Do we wish for making mistakes? No. Do we wish? No. But it is a process, and it is the bigger chesed than just chesed alone. Is chesed tov. <coughs> okay. Vekone <coughs> hakol. Hashem owns everything, which is, like, nice. It's good. It's actually quite reassuring to know that he's got it, he's got it all under control. But I do want to look into a little bit of that. So I have some notes from Rabbi Left, and then I want to take off from there a little bit. Um, okay. So he says... In accordance with the gra, that everything is a set of three here. So we had kel elyon, sort of kolen, right? Leading into gomel chasadim tovim, chesed, vekone hakol, that must be gvura, vizocher chaste avos will be ms or tiferes. Right? Avram Yitzchok Yaakov. He's saying so vekone hakol would be the gvura side. If we go according to this order, in which case vekone hakol is reminding us that Hashem 
has control over the universe, and yet he has he hasn't restricted himself because we know that he overrides Teva, but that generally speaking, he follows his own rules. He created a system for the world, and generally speaking, he will work within the system he created, which is a kind of limitation, so to speak, but it's his own limitation and he's not limited by it, but he plays by the rules of the game. The most constraining limitation of which is the existence of evil and of sin. That, that's a pretty hard rule to put into place. And yet, he's able to forgive and wipe that away. And I, I just want to remind you that, I mean, Rabbi Leff was careful with what he said here. Um, we're not allowed to say that Hashem is mevater. It's for, you're not allowed to say such a thing. The idea that, they go, well, God doesn't care, right? We've heard this. I heard it once from a very, very famous anti-religious politician in Israel. <laughs> God cares what you put in your pots, you know, like. Okay, this was like a common phrase. I, I've heard it from other people too. I think it was a generational thing, right? Okay, Hashem is not mevater. Every single thing matters. Every single thing, no matter how small. However, Hashem does forgive. Hashem's not mevater, but Hashem does forgive. And he has endless forgiveness available. There's a difference. There's a difference between vitur and machila or slicha. Because to be forgiven, you've got to ask to be forgiven. Right? I mean, presumably. I'm not saying halachically, do you have to ask? Do you have to make action of tshuva? Something, right? But Hashem will forgive really anything, more or less, with very few exceptions. God will forgive. So that's an important thing to realize because that's a very different paradigm for relating to Hashem. Kone HaKol, then, represents Hashem's restraint of his (coughs) infinite nature, restraint of his infinite nature by allowing room for the antithesis of his will, so to speak. Okay, obviously it's his will because he created it this way. But that sort of definition of tov as God's will that it should be kayam la'ad, that it should last forever, that was the Ramban's kind of definition, Evil is not God's will in the sense of his will that it should last forever. It's not forever. Evil will always have an end at some point. Okay? So God is, the, the gevura of kone hakol is that Hashem restrains his inf- infinite nature by allowing room for the opposite of his will. I'm going to add the word temporarily just because of what we've learned already. Hides within it the implication of the infinite power and the negation of the antithesis. And the fact that he allows it also means that within the fact that it exists is the fact that he will overpower it. He's kone hakol. He really is master of it all. Okay, so now we're going to go to a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. Here's a copy of it here. I, I, I said it's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. It's like a very puzzling thing, and I didn't... I didn't honestly spend the time to research exactly what the story is here. This is the sixth parak of Pirkei Avos, which is not actually part of Pirkei Avos, and I don't exactly understand it. <clears throat> it seems, I mean, it seems to be just slightly later than Avos. It's not part of Masechah's Avos, but it's part of Pirkei Avos. And it's even introduced with, like, the Chachamim said in the Lashon of the Mishnah. Right? This isn't, these aren't exactly Mishnayis, but they're Mishnayis for what that's worth. I don't know exactly. 
Hamisha, but they're not much later. They seem to be more or less contemporary to Perkevos, but somehow they're not Mishnayas themselves. I don't know. Okay, Hamisha Kinyonim, five Kinyonim. Okay, you see why we're bringing this Mishnah or whatever, pseudo Mishnah. Okay, because we're talking about Vikone Hakol. I know, I was also taken aback by the idea that this paragraph it says it right there at the beginning of the paragraph. Look, you see for yourself. It says, they said in the language of the Mishnah. They're talking Mishnah style. Like, I don't, what should I tell you? I know, I hate when people mention these things too. It's like, no, it all has to be. Can't explain it. All right, five Kinyanim. There are five Kinyanim. So what is a Kinyan? And that's going to be our next question. <coughs> so let's start with a working translation of the modern, just the modern word, kinyan is an acquisition. Now you will see why that is not possible that that is what is meant by at least the Lushan of the Mishnah. Right? If you are speaking Mishnah language, and we know that, we know that there are different dialects, right? There's a concept when you're learning that you need to know what is Lushan Chumash, what is the Lushan of Gemara, what is the Lushan of Mishnah. They're not the same. Words, vocabulary is not always used the same way. So you do need to know if what you're reading is, I mean, I personally don't know these things. Baruch for sure does. Like there are, there are things that are, no, like for sure. No, for sure, yeah. For sure. <laughs> okay, there are, I'm sure he could give us examples, which would be interesting, right? Yeah. There are words that are used one way in the Mishnah that is not the same as the way that word might have been used by Hashem in the Torah. And the same thing with the Gemara. The Gemara does not always use words exactly, but it uses it consistently within itself. But the language was changed and used differently over time. Okay, so when it's the Torah, that's how God said it. When it's the Mishnah, when it's the Gemara, you have to know that like what was going at that period of time to, un to know how that word should be translated for that context. You can't just say, I know that word from here and apply it there. It's a good starting point, but it's not exactly. Okay, so the fact that and for sure, modern Hebrew has gone off on its own thing completely. Okay. So a kinyan, here it means an acquisition, but it doesn't mean an acquisition. And you'll see right away why that is. There are five kinyanim. A kinyan can also mean a, like a purchase agreement, right? I'll make a kinyan with somebody. Mm -hmm. You ever see the rabbi pull a handkerchief out of his pocket and hand it to this one, hand it a pen, right? Hand, by the wedding. You get a kinyan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You pick it up. Why? Because... <laughs> When you, let, when you make a purchase of something, like in a store, right? So you always have the question. Let's say you change your mind. You say, you know what? I don't want to buy it. I change my mind. At what point do you have to say, no, you already bought it. It's yours. So if the person's willing to do another trade back, what nowadays we call that a return. We think it's like a right. Okay? <laughs> but but if, no, the, the person who sold it to you then has to agree to acquire it back. Right? I mean, they have to buy it back from you, basically, is what you're asking them to do. So at what point is it that, no, you haven't purchased it yet. It still belongs to them. So a bolt of lightning comes down from the sky and fries the bag of oranges. Have you already acquired them or not? Who lost the oranges? Okay, you, ha you always have a question. When did it happen? I'm trying to give, like, a non-threatening example. Not too stressful. Fried oranges. It could be they're better that way. <laughs> Barbecued, grilled oranges. I miss the people, like... Okay, yes, it was miraculous, but who lost the oranges? Who lost the $1.79 worth of oranges? So you, okay, so in a store, I don't, I don't even know when it would be. Is it when you hand over the money? Is it when you swipe the credit card where you've promised to pay by doing that? Is it only when you sign that you promise to pay? Is it when you picked up the oranges? 
after the purchase, right? So a lot of times in halacha, we'll say that it's when the, the object was picked up into your hand. That's why rabbis right. always carry like pens and hankies. What if you order it yeah. online? If you order it online, you also have the question. And you have this question, right? Because people will get things stolen from their front porch. And they're like, I never got it. And they'll say, but it was delivered. And we have the mark from UPS <laughs> saying that they left it on your property. But I didn't pick it up. But I never saw it there, and I never picked it up. Right, so when did it get acquired? It's a question. It's a question. I don't know the answer in halacha, but like, that's like a real question. And these things matter when something goes wrong between the time when the shopkeeper or whoever's selling, when the seller thinks he has sold it and the purchaser thinks he has received it. Okay, so it actually, these are like examples, this is like classic examples of when things really matter, and that's why rabbis have to have hankies and pens and things, because <laughs> you have to, yeah, sometimes if the thing that you're making the arrangement about is not tangible, or if it's, ta if it's not tangible, I'm not sure it's a Kenyan anyway, if it's tangible but not practical to pick up, I'm selling you a house. <laughs> okay, so... When you pick up the house, you know, and we certainly don't say that it only, you know, when you move in. It's usually when you hand over the key. Maybe when you, um, well, that's like a momentous moment, but usually you don't hand over the key till escrow closed. So it could be that they own it, you just owe them a key, right? I mean, that, that's kind of feels like when you got the house. It could be it's when you get the key, but it could be it's not. They've already changed all the documents over and... It's registered, and I don't know. I don't know, right? So that's why you'll have something that is manageable, and you'll say by picking this up, okay, you are acquiring whatever it is we're talking about so that you have like a moment where you know this is the moment of acquisition, and it makes things much, much clearer. Okay. I think that what we're going to learn is going to help explain why it is that when you pick something up into your hand, that's what we call kinyan. Okay. I think it's also interesting that the word kinyan, the root of it is cane, a nest. Ki akare kansi por lefanecha, if you see the, the okay, a nest. A nest? What does a nest have to do with acquiring something? But a nest is the personal space of the bird, right? The nest is pretty much the space that the bird feels is their own. I don't mean personal space like comfort zone. I mean like it's me. If you infringe into a nest, the bird feels that you have infringed on it, personally, on its body, right? Mm -hmm. Its eggs are an extension of itself, and it will sit there with them, and if it goes away and comes back and somebody has touched it, that's a crisis, right? The bird doesn't just look and say, oh, okay, fine, the eggs are still there, right? There's like an, a disaster because somebody touched the nest, okay? I think all these ideas actually are one idea. Hamisha Kenyonim. Five Kenyonim, Kona HaKadosh Baruch Hu Be'olamo. God has kana, which clearly the modern word purchased is not the word to go here because God is kone hakol. He owns everything, not he buys everything, <laughs> right? Nowadays, if you said somebody was kone, you mean they bought it. Well, that's, God doesn't have to buy anything in the world. He just creates it. <laughs> it's his, right? He didn't buy it from anybody. Okay, so... I'm struggling. I feel like I shouldn't even translate this word anymore. We just go back to the Hebrew words because we don't know what they mean and translating them into English is, makes it worse, not better. Because we're using words that clearly don't fit. And by the way, if you know that they don't fit, if it becomes obvious that they don't fit, I'll tell you the first one. The first one is Torah. Okay, we're not talking about a purchase. <laughs> clearly, clearly, clearly. Okay. 
especially when you say Yisrael ve'el rice of a kucha brichu like, we're not talking about purchasing. Hang on, that's one I better note here. Okay. Okay. Um, it helps to resolve a lot of the confusion when you hear, I, hopefully you don't hear it, but occasionally you'll come across people who get, who will use this as examples of um, the misogyny, you know, of traditional Judaism, buying a wife, you know. It's like, what, what, who said anything about buying anybody, right? Like, what are you talking about, <laughs> right? Okay, your price tag is. Okay, Hamisha <laughs> Kinyanim. Five Kinyanim. Yeah, that's like backwards, right? Buying from. Five Kinyanim. Kona Hakadosh Baruch Hu Baolamo. God was Kona in His world. Ve'eluhein, and here they are. Torah Kinyan Echad. Shamayim va'aretz Kinyan Echad. Heaven and earth Kinyan Echad. Avraham Kinyan Echad. Yisrael, Kenyan Echad. I tell you, we wives are in good company, that's for sure. Beis HaMikdash, Kenyan Echad. These are the five Kenyanim. Torah, Shemaim Va'aretz, which is interesting, that's one. Okay, I'm going to share something with you. I know nothing about it, but it came up in a conversation with Rabbi Apter. He told me that he asked Rav Ruvain Leichter once, in person, um, what is the difference between Eretz and Adama? And he said that Rav Leichter said, Adama, there's only one of. The physical earth, Eretz, there are two of. There is the physical earth, and there is the Eretz of the Shemayim. There's the Eretz of the Eretz, and there's the Eretz of the Shemayim. I don't know more than that, but it's a fascinating concept. I don't know more than that. It would be interesting to find out exactly what that's about. We've seen a concept like that, not about the whole Eretz, but there, I mean, there is like Artsos Hachayim. So I guess the next world can be described as Eretz. I never really thought about it that way. Um, we for sure have the idea that there's a Yerushalayim Shalmala, Yerushalayim Shalmata. There's a Beis HaMikdash Shalmala, Beis HaMikdash Shalmata, right? Um, the Shloss said that a person walking through, this is going back a lot of years. This was like one of the first shirim we ever had on davening. Um, when a person walks through the Beis HaMikdash Shalmata, it's as if his feet are also walking in the Beis HaMikdash Shalmala. It's like a rather amazing thing. Okay, so this concept, I guess, exists, but he was saying, no, Eretz. So it could be Shemaim Va'aretz. I don't know what Aretz it is. Meaning if it's Echad, if it's one thing, Shemaim and Aretz. I don't know. I don't know. Ela told us Shemaim Va'aretz Bihibaram. I don't know if it's talking about physical and spiritual. It's talking about the, I don't know. Okay, Shemaim Va'aretz Kenyan Echad. Avraham is one. Yisrael is one. Beis HaMikdash is one. And then... And this, the people or the person? Presumably the nation. Doesn't say. Um, actually, Yisrael minayin ad yavor am Hashem. So it's the Jewish people until your nation crosses. That's going to be in this parsha. Ad yavor am zukonisa until their pass their crosses through the sea. Right? Ad yavor am Hashem until your nation Hashem crosses through until this nation zukonisa which you have acquired, which you have been kona. Okay, so that's talking about the nation. Okay, and then it gives the, all of the examples, uh, all the psukim upon which this concept is based. Okay. Let me tell you, this is like a very strange thing to understand. Um, not, not this. Trying to understand the perushim on it is like beyond. 
So first there was this very interesting Rashi. And I read the Rashi. And I was very excited by the concept in the Rashi. But I was very confused by the Rashi because it doesn't sound like a Rashi. I'll tell you right away. It doesn't sound like a Rashi. Anyone could tell that it doesn't sound like a Rashi. Oh, here's the Rashi. Okay, it's a, it's an ama- it's a fantastic Rashi. Just at some point you go, wait a minute. Okay, five things Hashem was Kone. There's a whole bunch of things. The main, the main thing about the Kenyon that, that Rashi brings, he brings for each one how it apply, applies. But the principle is, Shebishvilo ha'olam miskayem. Meaning, when it says Hashem was kona something in the world, mm-hmm. what it means is, this is something for which the world exists. And there are five things for which the world exists. Because each of these things is something that draws the creations, that draws people closer to being under the wings of the Shekhinah. So it doesn't mean wings, right? Under the shadow of the Shekhinah. There are five things which Hashem was Kona in his Olam, which means there are five things for which the world exists because those things bring people closer to the Shekhinah and bring them to the good, which is a fascinating way to think about it, right? It kind of fits in a lot with what we were just talking about with the Gomel Chassad and Tovim, with the idea that the world is created essentially to bring us closer to Hashem. But to bring us closer to Hashem, that fits in with Mesilot Yesharim also, right? But the per- why, why is the world created? In order that people should be created. Why are people created? In order to draw close to the Shekhinah. Okay, but in order to have a drawing close, you have to have the ability to be far. That's, that's the, the Gevura side of drawing close, is that you have to be able to have drifted away to draw close. Okay, so that's an amazing thought, that this is the five things that are called Kinyan, the Kone Hakol, right? There are five things that Hashem was Kone. And through this, it draws everything close to him. Okay, <coughs> but, here's the but. Not a but on the, on the concept, and then he shows how each of the quotes that's brought is showing how, how that thing is not, is, by showing that the thing is a Kenyan, is showing that that thing is necessary, that the world would exist for its sake, for the sake of Torah. That, we've heard that idea about a few of them, right? Bereshis bar elokin, bishvil reishis, for the sake of Torah, which is reishis, for the sake of Yisrael, which is reishis. But the world was created even just for that. So this kind of helps fill in some of that information about that concept, right? The idea that the world is created for these things, for drawing people close to Hashem. But then the Rashi says, Bekama gimgum yesh bedavar. Gimgum is like stammering. He says this is kind of stammering over here because it seems like this brysa is not written properly because it contradicts a Gemara and Pesachim. All right. It doesn't contradict it, but the Gemara Masachim only says three things and over here five. Now, first of all, why is that a gimgum? Why is that? You should just have a question. Why over here five? Why over there three? Also, it's just a strange way to talk. I'm not an expert in Rashi, and Rashi, Rashi on Gemara or on Mishnah is not the same as Rashi on Chumash, and you have to know how to learn it, and I don't. Let's say right there. <laughs> okay. 
I'm not an expert, but when I read this, I had a daughter at the table, and I said, that's weird. Okay, so that's weird, and that's all, and then I went on, and it was this very interesting insight about the Kenya. So I said, I want to look up more about this. So there's the parish of the Bartanura, which is a standard parish. Parish of the Bartanura is identical, and I did a little more research and found that the parish of the Bartanura, at least on this mission, this Bartanura on Avos, but the parish of the Bartanura to this mission on Avos that we're learning is not the parish of the Bartanura. It's probably the parish of the Rashi. The problem is that it's not clear that the parish of the Rashi is the parish of the Rashi. I really hate to do this, I'm sorry. But I feel like I have to at least tell you this because... No, I have to tell you this because there's only so far we can go. No, well, I mean, the Bartnura somehow got into the Bartnura, probably. I'm assuming it was some kind of printer's error. <clears throat> but that, that, that could happen. I mean, that's easy enough if you're doing Parish of Rishonim on, on Ovos or something like that. <clears throat> but, and this, this explanation does not appear in the very earliest versions of Bartnura, so it's clearly not. Um, but the Chida. This is the eighth of us. The Chida, here's the Chida. The Chida has quite a long, in Ma'areches Gedolim of the Shem Gedolim, which is, I never even really knew, I think I might have come across this once before. He has like a whole Sefer describing all the different, like great commentators on Torah. It's like a, like an index. It's amazing. It's actually really fascinating. But then he has Rashi. And in the discussion of Rashi, and I didn't mark the place, he, he goes back and forth. It's apparently quite a discussion about the parish of Rashi on the last, on the last parak of Avos, whether that is in fact the parish of Rashi. So I felt better, but I was a little bit skeptical about that Rashi. It was like a little bit jumped out at me, like it's a funny way to talk. It's a funny way to talk. Gimgum? Like, how do you describe, you know? Okay, anyway, so. Um, and he goes through in detail, because, for example, it's known that Rashi passed away before finishing his parish on tomorrow. So there's a place at which, there's a, in the Rashi, it says, from here on in, I'm continuing, you know, like one of his grandsons continued. Like, that's not, that's not scandalous. You just have to know like, that that's what it is. Okay, and they learned with him directly, and it's the best, that's an amazing thing. Um, I'm just looking to see if I can quickly put my place on it. On Medarim. He goes through, like, all different places where there's any question about the parish of Rashi. That's Nadarim. Masachas Nadarim still. I would think it would be early because he also defends the Parish Rashi in many places. Okay, I don't think I can find it quickly enough. Anyway, I feel bad about that. Hmm. I'm sorry. Anyway, but I felt I needed to say that because once I'm quoting it and once I knew that there could be a question about its source, so anyway, there you go. That's what it is or isn't or something. I don't know. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> okay. Rav David Cohen has um, he he ties this to the next Mishnah. 
The next Mishnah after it, which is, I think, the final Mishnah in Avos, is, I have the first four words, so at least I know which Mishnah it is, Kol Masha Barakadosh Baruch Hu everything which God created in His world, L'chlodo Barasev. He created it for His glory, to glorify Hashem. Everything's created to glorify Hashem. Which, if you're feeling doubt about the value of your life, you should remember that you were created for the glory of God. And that's not small stuff. <clears throat> your existence is also there. Okay, so he says, working, working with that as the next statement tells us that these, these, um, these things which we say Hashem is kone hakol, Hashem, right? The Torah, Shemaim v'aretz, Avraham, Yisrael, the base Hamikdash, all things which is Rashi or someone in Rashi's name says, Okay. It's like when you little kids fall down. Don't breathe in. Remember that feeling from when I was a little girl. Okay. That each of the things which are described here as kinyanim, and which in the name of Rashi was explained, that these are all things for which it is worth it that the world is created, or for for them it is created, um, and that they draw people closer to the Shekhinah, and the next Mishnah, or the next Brisa, maybe is a more correct way to say it. I think that's what it is. is they're not Mishnahis, but they're Brisas. Um, that the next Brisa says, everything is created for the glory of Hashem, for, like to glorify his name. So then you can see that these five things are what bring, the glor- bring people closer to the Shekhinah, which is a, the same thing as making his name known and glorifying his name and giving honor to Hashem's name. That is what brings people closer. The process of it and the outcome of it, both, right? Realizing it, realizing that Hashem is there, and also drawing close to Him causes a greater realization in the world that Hashem is is there and present and providing all. Um, so therefore, each of these cases is a specific example of someone who helps make Hashem known in the world. That Hashem, like... He, he kind of bridges the gap between these two Mishnayas. It, not, not, there's not a gap, but he fills in what we should have intuited, so to speak, about it, understood the whole picture better, right? So the Vekone Hakol with Avraham, which is one we've come across before, right? So the Mishnah, the Brisa quotes, um, right, that was Malki Tzedek and Avraham, but that's, the context of that is right after the war with the four kings and the five kings, and Avraham misers everything that was brought out, all of that loot, <laughs> booty, he misers to Malkitzedek because he's Kohen Lashem Kehel Elyon. That, that whole passage is inserted between the end of the war and then right away, and the king of Sodom says to Avraham, you know what, you keep this, the, thing, the stuff you can keep the riches, but let me have the people. <laughs> you won't be the king of Sodom. I'll be the king of Sodom. 
okay? But you can keep all the money. I wouldn't ask you for that. And Avram says, I won't even take the shoelace, right? Shoe latch it. <laughs> I have to use it when I can. I won't even take a shoe latch it. I won't take a string from you. Lest you say that you made Avraham rich. Now, Avraham became very, very wealthy. But nobody should be able to say they made Avraham rich. It must be clear that Hashem made Avraham rich. So the context of that Hashem is Kel Elyon, Kone Shemaim Arts. God is Kel Elyon, who is Kone Hako, right? Is specifically the point, making that point. Hashem owns everything and he gives it where he pleases. That nobody should think that they had control, that they made someone rich, that's because of me that. It's not like that is exactly what Avraham was proclaiming in that, in that event that was going on during this whole Kaleo and Kone Shemaim Arts thing. It's very, very interesting. Okay. Yeah, grab a, a slider for these so that they don't get lost. These are like the best invention. And they have, there's a mistake in how they are computerized in the stock database. So I just buy them when I see them. You can't order them because the number doesn't show up. And I don't know how they ever manage to restock them because if you ask them, do they have it, and they scan it, they don't know. <laughs> it doesn't show up. There's nothing wrong with it. Okay, you can't buy it in any other store because it is a Staples brand product. Okay. <clears throat> So now, back to Rabbi Lach. Poniako. All right. So the first thing we said from Rabbi Lach's book was, Kone Hakol is a reflection of God's gavura, limiting and restraining his power within the fixed system of creation the most constraining limitation of which is the existence of evil and sin, right? He made the rules. He, has, he can change them. But these are the rules that God chooses to pour creation through. This is the mold into which he's pouring the creation. But also God's ability to forgive and wipe that away. That was number one. The Mishnah in Perkei Avos, he calls it a Mishnah, okay. I'll go with Rabbi Lev any day, right? <laughs> that God made five kinyonim in the world. So what is the concept of a kinyon? Okay, so I wanted us to first see it inside and then, okay. Concept of a kinyon, an act of acquisition which determines ownership. What do we do with that here? What do we do with that in a, in a lot of places? It's, by the way, somebody point, I think it was Nassim who pointed out to me that the halachos of acquiring a wife and are the same, the same forms of acquisition as acquiring property, land. Yeah, the thing is about land, you never really acquire land, right? Every 50 years it goes back to the original. Mm -hmm. So acquiring doesn't mean what we think acquiring means, right? Reverse says that because you don't, you can't acquire a person just like you can't acquire land. 
That's why the same, the same format is used for a wife and a piece of property. But this one's over 50 years. <clears throat> that's good. <laughs> he says, that's the point. The point is that it doesn't mean that now it belongs to me. Because you can't acquire a person either. Okay, good to know. So what, then what is a Kenyan? What does it mean? The result of a Kenyan binds the one who affects the Kenyan with the object of the Kenyan so that they become one. They share an identity, which is why I'm suggesting, I didn't see this, but I don't think it's a stretch, that nest, kan, is the root of Kenyan. Right? It's an extension of the identity of yourself to include something or someone else so that you feel that it is you. And if it is damaged or hurt or taken away from you, you're missing something. You feel that you are missing. There's a hole somewhere in you. When you buy a car in America, it's a serious decision because a car is not a tool, right? You know LA, you are what you drive. I didn't make that up, right? This is like a thing here, right? You could have it go the other way if you feel uncomfortable about how nice your car is because it doesn't represent, right? Like maybe it's representing like a, a materialism that you don't feel is true to yourself, right? But my gosh, it's a car. Like we don't get that way about bobby pins. You buy the fancy bobby pins or the cheap bobby pins, who cares, right? But it can become somehow there's this, there is in the concept of Kenyan, Kenyan is not describing your mastery of it, it's describing that the identity is merged. This is his coffee machine, right? So you gotta have like, people walk around talking about like their coffee and what kind of coffee do you like? Are you like a Starbucks person or a coffee bean person? Or are you only like a, you know, only single source organic coffee bean I'll grind it myself person, fresh each morning, right? Like that's gonna tell you who you are. There is something in Kenyan, what is described in Kenyan is not ownership because Hashem is Kone Hako, right? It, what is described in Kenyan is whose identity is this merged with? And the identity part goes a little bit both ways, right? Because I sort of feel like I'm represented by my stuff. This is not necessarily a good thing, right? That's a case to be made for having less stuff. You're going to feel like you're identified by your stuff, right? But it's also more or less, right? There are things like the bobby pins or what pencil, I don't know, like it's just practical. And I don't identify myself especially by that. And then there are some things where we identify ourselves much more. Maybe our house, maybe our car, if you live in L.A. We were talking about this with, with the kids. Like in L.A., part of it is that your car is, is your mobile house in L.A. Because people spend so much time in their car... Plus, the car is the part that people see because people don't have, you know, outside the Jewish community, most people, they can, you can have very good friends that have never seen their home. People don't necessarily meet up in houses, so the car becomes your, your mini home. Yeah, even if it's not an RV, <laughs> this is like your little house. You eat in it, you drink in it, you listen in it. Like, you do everything in, in the car in hours a day. You might spend more time practically awake in a car than in the house, like it can happen, you know? So then you identify that way. No, you hope not, but it probably is why LA is more so that way than other cities because of the traffic, right? Okay. As the tells her Rosh Yeshiva, Harav Mordechai Katz observes, an animal 
Or a non-Jewish slave acquired by a Kohen becomes an extension of the Kohen. You can give it truma to eat. I will give you a practical and amusing example. Um, the biblical zoo, the zoo in Israel, which is not like a bastion of halacha, but they do kind of basically follow halacha with it. Very interesting. Like you, At least until, as far as I know, you couldn't actually buy entrance tickets on Shabbos to go to the zoo. Very interesting. You could come, but the tickets had to be bought ahead. And they're not, you know, they're not looking how you come. I mean, you know, you could walk there, like, right? <laughs> okay. But because there's nothing wrong with them, actually, the fact that the zookeepers come and feed the animals and give them something, that's good. They're supposed to do that. So that's not a problem. So the fact that the zoo is there and people can come and walk around and look at animals, there's no problem, right? But they don't sell tickets because that you're not allowed to do. I'll take before. Whatever. I'm not saying it's halachic. I'm just no, okay. Open on they are open on Shabbos, yeah. and yet they're not boycotted. They're not in the chayrum of like, you can't go to a come. You know how there's like you're not supposed I to go to businesses or yeah. sites that are that are not shomer Shabbos because they are not mechal Shabbos b'farhesia. Right. You're allowed to do business with somebody. This is I should explain for the tape. There's a special chayrum of Jerusalem. It, it seems to maybe apply outside Jerusalem also, but it's a specific. Israeli thing that was made early on when you started having the issues of like the reform and people coming in who were not orthodox and opening businesses on Shabbos, which had never existed before. So it's not that you cannot do business with someone who's Mechal Shabbos, you can. It's not doing, not giving business to a business, to a company which is publicly Mechal Shabbos. So the fact that the business is owned by someone who himself is Mechal Shabbos, but he keeps the store closed on Shabbos, that's fine. So businesses that are open on Shabbos, that's a problem. The zoo is not ever, nobody seems to include that, and that's why. Because they don't sell tickets on Shabbos. The fact that they're there and whatever, it's not a problem. You've got to take care of the animals. You can't just abandon them. You've got to feed them. If you have a barn in your backyard, you also have to feed the animals, right? So that's okay. So that was absolutely a side note about the Kenyan extension of the Kohen. There is a, pers- a Kohen who is, I don't know how they do it, partial owner, whatever it is that they have for the zoo. And it's probably Tanuva, meaning the big micers that get taken, the truma, not the micer, the truma off the micer that gets taken from the big <coughs> agricultural conglomerates get sent to the Jerusalem Biblical Zoo for the animals which are owned by a coin. Again, I'm not saying that this is actually like, I don't know how legitimate their solution is. It could be it's good. It could be it's good. It could be they did it right. As long as you're bothering to do it, do it right. I don't know. I know like, you know, I went to the bank. We got a mortgage and we had to check like, yes, that do you have a head to Ersko? The guy points to the wall. There's a framed picture, you know, of the manager of the bank, like, you know, Temporary yarmulke, like, propped on top of his head, shaking hands with, like, I don't know, Revolvadio Yosef or somebody, you know, like, putting into place the heteriska for the mortgage bank. You know, like, sometimes they really do just get it right. Because, like, why would you bother doing it wrong, you know? Anyway, the Jerusalem Zoo. That's, this is, like, the case where it's, like, you remember, not only a Kohen can eat truma. The animal of a Kohen can eat truma as a miser's. Isn't that cool? It's really neat, right? So instead of, like, just having to rot, it gets used. It gets used. It's legitimate. Okay. Yeah, and I don't know. Is this a meyuchastik a coin? This I can't answer these questions. But it's interesting. Okay. So how can it be that you can give an animal something to eat that's too holy to give to an, a Yisrael? Right? Or to their, their non-Jewish evan? 
How, how can that be? The answer is the Kenyan. The fact that this is something that the Kohen is Kona, what it means is their identities have merged. So you're benefiting the Kohen by, by feeding his animals for sure benefit to him, right? Now, the fact that he can have, he can have the, whatever food the Kohen could eat himself, he can also share it with his animal. And what's he supposed to do? Not share the food? Like, how is he supposed to feed his animals, right? That, it's very interesting. So the Kenyan reflects the ownership of the object, but it also reflects the bond between the owner and the object. Kenyan doesn't just mean acquiring, although colloquially that's how we use it. Kenyan refers to a bond, a relationship. All right. Hashem exhibits his ownership of the world and he has bound himself to it in five manifestations. I just like want to say that again. Okay, so he's taking that, the Mishnah Navos. He says, what the Mishnah Navos told us is there are five kinyonim with which, Hash, which Hashem has been kona in his world. And he's saying Hashem exhibits his ownership of the world through five manifestations. And that also means, because it's a Kenyan, Hashem bound himself, he relates himself, his identity to the world with five manifestations. It's both, because Kenyan means both, right? Kenyan means the ownership of the object, and Kenyan means the bond between the owner and the object. So now he's taking that and applying that back into Shemona Esrei. Hashem is kone hakol. That means Hashem demonstrates his ownership of the world through five means, he says manifestations, and Hashem binds himself to the world through five things, the bond between the owner and the object. So what are the five manifestations that exhibit Hashem's mastery or ownership of the world and in doing so are the bond they themselves are the bond between Hashem and the world amazing right and really it is basically that Rashi and sort of the way Rav David Cohen helped us bridge across from the one Mishnah to the next this is really saying the same thing but much much more clearly the Avos the first one is the Avos Okay, so he's saying Avraham, and he's including the other Avos, it seems. By choosing to devolve his name on the Avos, Hashem's attributes are manifested through the lives of the Avos. Right? Chesed, Gura, Emes. Whose mitos are these? They're manifested through the Avos. The Avos are the Merkava. They are the vehicle for bringing Hashem Shechina to the world, to declaring it. It, I mean, this is, seems to be exactly the same statement. This idea of Kenyon as exhibiting his ownership and also being the bond itself. Through the process of, the demo, of saying that this Hashem is the owner is also being the bond of it. They are the source of recognizing God's presence in creation and recognizing God's attributes in the way he runs the world. The next one, Yisrael. Doesn't do them in order. Okay. Yisrael, the ongoing development of the Jewish people, right? The process the, through history of Israel, <laughs> not, the, not the country, the people. 
manifests God's divine providence in the world. It's a second display of God's ownership and bond to the world. As the Ramban remarks, the greatest proof of God's existence is the continued survival of the Jewish people, which in light of all that we're up against is nothing less than miraculous. But to recognize that the presence of the by the way, this comes up, it comes up in these parshas we're reading of Shovavim. That Hashem says, I really would have just destroyed the Jewish people. We're doing over the Zara and Mitzrayim, like, right? But then people will say that I destroyed, right? Like, that there's no, right? The, there's, there's places where we don't deserve to be saved. A lot of places. And Hashem saves us, Lema'an Shemo, <laughs> for the sake of his name. Because the existence of the Jewish people and our process through history is a manifestation and a representation and a declaration that God has hashkacha pratis, that God's hand is involved in the world, that he created it and he is master of it and he controls it and he knows what's going on and cares. And the proof of that, that everyone can see, that is out there for the world to look at, is watch the Jewish people as they travel through history. And you see that. The Beis HaMikdash, sorry, got very late here. The Beis HaMikdash is the place where Hashem's presence was perceivable through daily miracles that occurred there. In addition, the awe-inspiring physical environment of the Mikdash engenders an intimate, intense feeling of God's imminent presence. Furthermore, the Avoda, including the sacrificial order and other services of the Mikdash, exhibits a bond between God and the totality of his world. Through the Avoda, the whole world is brought essentially up to him, and also his bracha comes out into everything. The Beis HaMikdash was therefore another manifestation of God's ownership of the world and his bond to it. It's amazing to me how all of these really are, this is really the same idea we've said the whole day today, but slightly different ways, and each one builds on the other. Like, you, you, like you want to go back now to the end and, re, and re, review, like yeah. lather and repeat, you know, so that you could learn the beginning in light of the end and the end in light of the beginning. It's difficult to pick a place to start because... That's why I taped it, so I could listen to it again. Okay. The Torah and heaven and earth. So he quotes the Rambam and Sefer HaMitzvos, which we have seen. The path to love of Hashem is through Torah learning. How do you come to love Hashem? Learn Torah. As Mr. Rogers puts it. When you love someone, you want to know everything about them. I don't know where he got that line from, but it's pretty awesome. Fred Rogers, I don't know. Okay. It's a, it's a good line. Love involves a deeply intimate and all-encompassing knowledge of the object loved. Okay, clearly he got it from Rabbi Lef. <laughs> one knows God by knowing his will, which is manifest in the Torah. Through knowing Hashem by learning Torah, one comes to love him. In Hilchos Yesodei HaTorah, the Rambam talks, this is the famous quote, he talks about contemplating the natural world and its awe-inspiring wonders, which leads one to love of Hashem. And he's, he, what he's saying is these are really more or less the same thing. Hashem used the Torah to create the world. So you can look at the Torah, which is more the source, or you can look at the outcome, which is the world. Nature is a physical manifestation of Torah. That's why there's Aseras Hadibros and ten Ma'amaros of creation. That's why they correspond. This is the physical manifestation of Torah. But there is a very big difference. Because through learning Torah, 
it's not learning Torah is not a dangerous way because the light of the Torah study guides one to good. But studying the world could lead someone to just see the mask, right? You you could accidentally not get all the way to love of Hashem through studying the world. So you need to be a little more careful with that. In light in, in this light, I'm skipping very, very interesting stuff. I would totally encourage you to go back, like find the book, borrow the book, sit here and read the book because we don't like to let the book out of the house. But uh, there's a lot of good stuff I'm leaving out. I'm sticking, trying to stay focused on the principle. In this light, all of creation was created to inspire and lead us to recognize and love Hashem. The Gemara says that on the fifth day of the week, we recite chapter 81 of Tehillim, because on this day, birds and fish were created to praise Hashem's name. And Rashi explains, it's not the birds and fish themselves that sing Hashem's praises, but when people observed the birds and fish, they praised the one who created them. Observing HaKadosh Baruch Hu through nature adds to one's knowledge of Hashem in three ways. You know what? I'm going to leave that till next time, because it's late. But I wanted to close with one thing. When one recites the Kone HaKol in Shemona Esrei, and I, I can't promise that I understand how to do this. I haven't managed it yet. He should contemplate the five manifestations. Meaning when you hear the words vekone hakol come out of your own mouth, that reminds you that there are five manifestations that God created in this world that draw us closer to him, that draw him close to us, that make his presence known and exhibited in the world. Torah. Torah, Shemaim Va'aretz, Avraham, Yisrael, the Beis HaMikdash. And to remember those five things, dwelling on furthering his intimate recognition of Hashem within the framework of creation. You remember he started all this by saying that Kone HaKol was the Gevura of working within the framework of creation that he made. That was the beginning, right? Playing by his own rules. Okay? So that's... That's the kavana of the kone hakol, the kavana that we would ideally have. Like I told, I haven't managed it, but I mean it's still early on. <laughs> I I keep, I'll keep trying. The kone hakol to focus on those five parts of creation, as ways that we see, we recognize Hashem, and recognize this framework of creation in which man and specifically the Jew is the purpose. This is Vikone Hakol. It, it explains a lot. It explains a lot about that whole Malkitzedek and this handing over of the Kelo Yon Kone the Arts. It explains why it's here in Shemona. It explains a lot, but it's also a lot to think about. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yeah.